Chapter 1, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953. Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Communist Challenge No spot on earth could have seemed farther removed from war's alarms than Yellowstone Park on the tranquil Sunday afternoon of 25 June 1950. Yet it was here that Lieutenant General Lemuel C. Shepard, Jr., Commanding General of Fleet Marine Force Pacific, FMF PAC, had his first news of communist armed aggression in Korea and the resulting threat to world peace. Appointed to his new command only nine days before, he was motoring from the Marine Corps schools at Quantico to the West Coast. From Yellowstone Park, he advised Admiral Arthur W. Radford, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Pacific Fleet, of his readiness to proceed to Hawaii and the Far East. His offer was accepted, and a Marine plane from El Toro transported him from Salt Lake City to San Francisco. There he boarded the first available plane to Pearl Harbor, arriving in the early morning hours of 2 July. On this date, with the Korean conflict only a week old, the armed forces of the United States were already committed. From the outset, the United Nations had viewed the Red Korean invasion of the Republic of Korea as a challenge issued to free nations by world communism. The so-called North Korean People's Republic had been set up after World War II as a communist puppet state, and the army of invasion was both trained and armed by Soviet Russia. More than half of the troops in the original North Korean People's Army, NKPA, were veterans of the victorious Chinese Communist forces in the Chinese Civil War. Weapons and equipment, all the way from T-34 tanks to Takarev pistols, had been made available by the Soviet Union, and Soviet instructors prepared the invading army for its surprise attack of 25 June on the Republic of Korea. There could have been little doubt as to the outcome. Although the ROC Army included eight divisions and a regiment, estimated at some 98,000 men in all, it could not compare with the NKPA establishment of about equal numbers. The difference lay in the purposes for which the two forces had been organized during the joint Soviet-American occupation of Korea after World War II. While Red Army officers created the NKPA as an instrument of aggression, American instructors trained the ROC troops for frontier defense and internal security. They had neither tanks nor combat aircraft, and their heaviest artillery consisted of a few battalions of 105mm howitzers. It was scarcely more than a lightly armed constabulary which crumpled at the first shock of NKPA columns led by Soviet-made tanks and supported by Soviet-made bombing planes. The four ROC divisions deployed along the frontier were routed, and Seoul fell to the invaders on the third day. The reaction of the United Nations was prompt and decisive. On 27 June, the UN Security Council denounced the NKPA attack as a breach of world peace and called upon member nations to aid the Republic of Korea. The United States and 52 other nations approved this resolution, which was opposed only by the Soviet Union and two of its satellites. As the NKPA tanks entered Seoul, just evacuated by American nationals, President Truman ordered American air and sea forces in the Far East to support the shattered ROC Army. With the U.S. 7th Fleet protecting Formosa, Task Force 77 bombed and bombarded points on the Korean coast. Far East Air Forces, FIF, 
consisting of eight and a half combat groups commanded by Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer, U.S. Air Force, flew interdictory strikes, meanwhile, from bases in Japan against NKPA supply lines. Within a few days, the NKPA Air Force, consisting of about 100 yak-type planes, was driven from the skies except for occasional night raids. It would appear that a mountainous peninsula of few good roads would be a favorable area for strategic bombing, since our naval forces were denying the sea lanes to the enemy. Yet the FIF bombers could not prevent the aggressors from bringing up supplies at night by means of truck, animal, and human transport. The columns of invasion were doubtless hampered, but they continued to roll on southward in spite of interdictory strikes. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, Commander-in-Chief Far East, Sink Fee, concluded on 29 June during his first flying visit to the front that air and naval action alone could not be decisive, and that nothing short of the intervention of U.S. ground forces could give any assurance of stopping the communists and of later regaining the lost ground. Unfortunately, he had only the four understrength divisions of the 8th U.S. Army at his disposal in the Far East. During the two world wars, the United States had been able to raise and train armies while allies held the line. But no such respite was forthcoming in Korea and the first U.S. ground forces at the front consisted of a small task force flown from Japan, an incomplete battalion reinforced by a battery of artillery. The date was 2 July 1950, and on this same Sunday, Sink Fee sent a request to Washington for the immediate dispatch of a Marine Regimental Combat Team, RCT, with appropriate air to the Far East. Authorization of Marine Brigade it is not quite a coincidence that 2 July happened also to be the date of General Shepard's arrival at Pearl Harbor. Previous decisions in Washington had made it virtually certain that General MacArthur's request would be granted, and CG FMF Pack was on his way to the Far East to prepare for the reception of the Marine reinforcements. The first step had been taken on 28 June. General Clifton B. Cates, Commandant of the Marine Corps, conferred at the Pentagon with Admiral Forrest P. Sherman, Chief of Naval Operations. He urged that troops of the Fleet Marine Force be employed, and CNO promptly informed Vice Admiral C. Turner Joy, Commander of Naval Forces, Far East, ComNav Fee, that a Marine RCT could be made available if General MacArthur desired it. Sink Fee had hoped that an entire Marine division could be sent to the Far East, but after being briefed by Admiral Joy as to the limitations of Marine Corps numbers, he had to content himself with the request for an RCT. Admiral Sherman acted at once. With the approval of JCS and the President, he ordered Admiral Radford to transport the Marine units across the Pacific. This was the inception of the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade, reinforced, which was activated on 7 July with three squadrons of Marine Aircraft Group 33 as its air component. First Conference on Incheon Landing While General Shepard stopped for a few days at Pearl Harbor, the possibility of an Incheon amphibious operation was mentioned officially for the first time at a conference in Tokyo attended by two Marine officers. On 4 July, a party given by the American colony was interrupted by a message for Brigadier General William S. Fellers, Commanding General of Troop Training Unit, Amphibious Training Command, Pacific Fleet, and Colonel Edward S. Forney, Commanding Mobile Training Team ABLE for that organization, 
As specialists in amphibious techniques, they were summoned along with Army and Air Force officers to a meeting at headquarters, FECOM, presided over by General MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Major General Edward M. Almond, U.S. Army. The Marine officers were in Japan as a result of General MacArthur's belief in the efficacy of amphibious tactics. Early in 1950, several months before the outbreak of the Korean conflict, he had foreseen the necessity of recovering lost ground by means of a ship-to-shore assault if an enemy ever won a foothold in the Japanese islands. His request for amphibious instructors to train U.S. Army troops in Japan had found the Navy and Marine Corps ready with units set up for just such a purpose. The oldest was the TTU organization of the FIB Trade Pack, established originally on 15 August 1943, to prepare Army as well as Navy and Marine forces for amphibious operations. After making a distinguished record in World War II, TTU created a permanent place for itself during the following five years. A group of TTU officers and enlisted men under the command of Colonel Forney made up Mobile Training Team ABLE in the spring of 1950. Sailing from San Diego in April, these Marines were accompanied by a second group of amphibious specialists, the Anglico, Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company, instruction team commanded by Lieutenant Edward B. Williams, U.S. Navy. The Anglicos, composed of both Navy and Marine Corps personnel, evolved in 1949 to assist Army units lacking the forward air control and naval gunfire control units which are integral in Marine divisions. Growing out of the responsibility of the Marine Corps for the development of those phases of landing force operations pertaining to tactics, techniques, and equipment employed by landing forces, the first company was formed in answer to the request of Lieutenant General Mark W. Clark, U.S. Army, for a unit capable of giving an Army division this sort of amphibious fire support. After taking part in the Miki exercises with the 6th Army in Hawaii during the autumn of 1949, this Anglico split up into instruction teams assigned to various Army units. Training Team ABLE and Lieutenant Williams's Anglico team reached Japan just in time to cooperate with a third organization of amphibious specialists. Rear Admiral James H. Doyle's amphibious group, FIBGRU, 1 of the Pacific Fleet. The three teams were given a mission of training one regiment from each of the four 8th Army divisions in Japan but the instruction program had only been launched when it was interrupted by the Korean conflict. FIBGRU-1 and the Anglico team were immediately assigned to new duties in connection with the sea lift of 8th Army troops to Korea. They had just begun this task when orders came for Admiral Doyle and his staff in the USS Mount McKinley at Sasebo to proceed by air on 4 July to the conference at Tokyo. There at FECOM headquarters, they met General Fellers, Colonel Forney, and the Army officers who had been summoned from the Independence Day celebration of the American colony. At the conference, it was made plain that the concept of an Inchon landing had originated with General MacArthur. Even at this early date, he envisioned not only a ship-to-shore assault on some east or west coast seaport, preferably Inchon, but also a drive inland to cut enemy communications and envelop Seoul. The Joint Strategic Plans and Operations Group, J.S. POG, headed by Brigadier General Edward K. Wright, U.S. Army, FECOM G3, was then drawing up the outline of such an amphibious attack plan. 
codenamed Operation Blue Hearts. It called for a landing in the Inchon area by a Marine RCT and an Army assault force in coordination with a frontal attack from the south by the 24th and 25th Divisions. Inchon had been designated the objective area for the amphibious assault, and the date would depend upon the availability of troops for the combined operation. It would be an understatement to say that the naval and marine officers were impressed by the boldness of MacArthur's thinking. At a time when he could send only a battalion-sized force to the aid of the shattered rock army, his mind had soared over obstacles and deficiencies to the concept of an amphibious operation designed to end the war at a stroke. It was an idea that fired the imagination. But the amphibious specialists of TTU and FibGru-1 had been trained to view the risks with a realistic appraisal. Their admiration was tempered by caution, therefore, when they took into account the difficulties. The end of World War II had found the United States at a peak of military strength never before attained in the nation's history. Then, within a year, the popular clamor for the immediate discharge of citizen soldiers had left the Army with scarcely enough troops for the occupation of strategic areas in the Far East. It took vigorous recruiting to fill the ranks in time of peace, and on 25 June 1950, the U.S. 8th Army in Japan included the 7th, 24th, and 25th Infantry Divisions and the 1st Cavalry, Dismounted Division. Infantry regiments were limited to two battalions. In the lack of trained amphibious assault troops, a definite decision could not be reached at the conference of 4 July. But it was proposed by FECOM officers that Major General Hobart H. Gay's 1st Cavalry Division be employed as the Army assault force of the proposed Inchon operation. FIBGRU-1 and Training Team ABLE were to give the troops all possible amphibious training, and Colonel Forney was assigned on 5 July as the G-5 plans of the division. General Shepard in Tokyo the activation of the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade on 7 July freed General Shepard to continue his trip to the Far East. That evening, accompanied by his G-3, Colonel Victor H. Krulak, he took off from the Pearl Harbor area on the flight to Tokyo. Upon his arrival, CGFMF PAC was acquainted by General Allman with the deteriorating military situation. As a first step toward sending U.S. ground forces to Korea, Sink V had set up the GHQ Advanced Command Group under the command of Brigadier General John H. Church, U.S. Army. After beginning the reorganization of the ROC forces, it was absorbed on 3 July by headquarters, U.S. Armed Forces in Korea. And with the establishment next day of the Pusan Logistical Command, Brigadier General Crump Garvin, U.S. Army, a start was made toward handling the mountains of supplies which would be required. On 4 July, the initial contact of U.S. ground forces with the enemy took place near Osan. The little task force from Major General William F. Dean's 24th Infantry Division could not attempt anything more ambitious than delaying actions. But preparations were afoot to send the rest of the division to Korea as soon as possible, to be followed by Major General William B. Keene's 25th Infantry Division. The first firefights occurred on 5 and 6 July in the vicinity of Osan. It was evident at once that the enemy held a great superiority in arms and equipment. 
Lieutenant General Walton H. Walker, U.S. Army, who had been one of Patton's favorite subordinates, commented after his first visit to the Korean front that the NKPA units appeared equal to the Germans who were his adversaries in World War II. Accounts of the early actions in Korea were depressing to FECOM officers. Many plausible excuses may be found for men snatched from occupation duties and rushed piecemeal into action against great material odds. The nation as a whole must share the blame when willing troops are sent to the firing line without adequate preparation, as were the first U.S. units. Eighth Army officers had done their best under the circumstances, but a scarcity of maneuver areas in Japan had restricted training exercises to the battalion and company levels. Divisions with barely 70% of their full complement of troops were armed with worn World War II weapons, some of which proved unserviceable for lack of spare parts and maintenance personnel. Division tank units, equipped with light M24 tanks because of poor roads and bridges in Japan, operated at a handicap against the enemy's new Soviet T-34 tanks. And American 2.36-inch rocket launchers knocked out NKPA armor only at fairly close ranges. At this stage, the ground forces were particularly dependent upon air support because of shortages of artillery. But since the mission of the Air Force in Japan had been primarily of a defensive nature, neither the organization nor equipment was available for effective air-ground cooperation on the tactical level. As a consequence, FIF units had to confine their tactical efforts largely to targets of opportunity, and 24th Infantry units had to do without such support when it was most needed. Altogether, the so-called police action in Korea proved to be one of the toughest assignments ever given to American soldiers. End of Chapter 1, Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett